Carrie and I are still on holiday break, but we'll be back in mid-January with all new episodes. Until then, we have some favorite replays. New Year's Eve is just a few days away, and often we think of toasting with a glass of sparkly at the stroke of midnight. Historical fiction writer Rebecca Rosenberg's love of wine, and sparkling wine in particular, took her on travels to France to visit the great wine houses. And one of the things she discovered was the huge influence women had on the wine and sparkling wine industry. That inspired her to write Champagne Widows, a novel about Madame Clicquot, France's first lady of wine from Napoleon's time. In fact, you may be toasting in 2023 with a glass of Clicquot wine as it is still one of the premier sparkling wines today. Rebecca will continue the series this coming March with the publication of her novel about Madame Pomery, who lived in the 1860s but changed the way we think of champagne today. Cheers, everyone. I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, I am like a golden retriever, and Carrie is definitely like a grumpy cat, talk about all the coolness that comes from living a bookish life. Each week, we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. Part of what drew us to this week's author, Rebecca Rosenberg, was the cool cover of her historical fiction novel, Champagne Widows. But as we read the book, we realized it was a pretty fascinating story of a young widow, Madame Clicquot, who essentially revolutionized champagne production in France during the Napoleonic years. Rebecca has written two other historical fiction novels, but Champagne Widows is the first in a series about the trailblazing women of wine in France in the 19th century. As a champagne historian, Rebecca decided these stories needed to be told. She gave us a lot of the background on Champagne and Madame Clicquot when we spoke to her. And reading Rebecca's book right around New Year's gave Amy all the excuse she needed to splurge on a bottle of Vu Clicquot champagne and share it with me to toast in 2022. And it was delicious. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. <laughs> but first... I have broken out. I have busted loose. My my father-in-law is doing much better since his open heart surgery, and he's able to drive and get out some. And so I've decided that I am coming back to the world of the living. I am enjoying it. I, You know, it's sort of funny. It's like when I decided it was time that I could start coming out of my house. I am doing like all the things now. It was sort of gradual, I guess, but not really. <laughs> sort of like, okay, hot damn, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I've got months of activities that I need to get done like in six days. Yes. Like I am about four weeks late on getting my hair cut and colored and it is a horror show and I'm getting that fixed this week. So What's going on with you? Anything? Uh, you know, we've had snow days, like a lot of snow days. And so we had an ice storm Thursday into Friday. So I've actually gotten a lot of reading done. I have been doing a lot of reading, but I'm going to tell a funny story on my oldest son. He's an adult, but he he still lives with us temporarily. But <laughs> it's sort of like every time there's a storm, that's when he decides that he needs to go out and do something. 
So we had a snowstorm, I don't know, last week or the week before, and he decides that he really needs to go out and get a coffee at Starbucks, <laughs> like right then. And then the night before this big ice storm that we just had that was all across the Midwest and Northeast, I think, he decides that that is a good time to schedule a date with someone who lives about an hour away. Oh, my gosh. Now, the ice storm wasn't supposed to hit till the next morning. But still, I mean, what if it comes a little bit early or, oh you know, things go particularly well with this date and you don't come <laughs> home or, you know, <laughs> what have you? I guess I don't need to know all the details, right, but right. leave it to my son to pick the most inopportune times Ooh. to do all of his socializing. I thought you were going to say something about when you were reading you had said that you were doing a lot of reading that he picks the most inopportune times to have a conversation with you because that's what my sons do. They have not had a full week of school since December. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. They have not had a full week, a full week of school, like in-person school because the first week they were back, we had a snowstorm and then Omicron was you know really bad. There weren't enough teachers. And so then they had like two and a half weeks or something of online classes. And then the week they were going to like come back, then we had a snowstorm. And then last week they were out on Thursday and Friday. They have not had a full week of school. <sighs> so that's something. Yeah, you're ready for them to be back at a school little all bit. the time. Yeah, a little bit. I'm sort of wintered out. I just need the weather to be a little bit better. I agree with that. Yeah. In this time that it has been cold and been dreary, I, uh, I've i been watching some more series and I found one that I thought was really cute and funny. I've not finished it yet because it only comes out once a week. But it's on Apple Plus and it's called After Party. And my husband and I are really enjoying this series. And it's kind of a cool premise. Kind of an Agatha Christie-esque type of murder mystery. Mm -hmm. There is a high school reunion. And one of the people at the reunion who went to this high school is now like a major rock star, right? He comes to the reunion and then has an after party at his house. So at the after party, someone dies. Mm -hmm. And the, a detective comes who happens to be played by the comedian and actress Tiffany Haddish, and she's hysterical. And she tells everybody they have to stay at the house because she has to interview and take statements from all of them. Mm -hmm. And each episode is about 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes long. And it's her interviewing one of the suspects at the party, but each one is done in a different movie style. So like the first one was a rom-com. The second episode was an in the in the style of an action thriller movie. Mm -hmm. The third one was a musical. And the fourth one that I saw was a psychological thriller. Now they're in this style because the person who's telling their story, that's the way the story happens in their mind. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I think that the writing is kind of clever. You know, it had some kind of similar vibes as only murders in the building. So if you like that, you might also like this. Hmm. So I'd recommend it. Well, I will tell you, I watched The Power of the Dog Oh, recently, and that is an excellent film. So, mm. and it's based on a book. And so I've got that. I've now added that book to my TBR. But that so let's talk about this. You have a little bit of a problem with watching <laughs> all these movies that are based on books and yeah. then wanting to go and read the book. Like you saw The Last Duel. Yeah, now I'm reading With that. Matt Damon. And now you're reading that. And mm. then there was another one recently you told me about that you had oh. to read. 
this is becoming like a thing. Oh, well, it's sort of always been a thing. Well, and then there was the whole Witcher thing, the whole Witcher yeah. series. And then yeah, you I had to read the, the book. And then I read the books. Yeah. It's kind see, of I kind of do it in the reverse order. If I see that there's a movie coming out and I think that I would ever want to read the book, I always want to read the book first. For whatever reason, Power of the Dog, I don't think I'm going to want to read that book. I don't know why. I just don't think I will. So I'd be fine watching that movie and not reading the book. And I probably wouldn't go back and read the book. I could be wrong. Maybe I would. We just do it in reverse order is yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah. See, doing it in reverse requires me to actually google stuff and like pay attention to movies that are coming out and i don't do that Uh, i see okay so carrie i don't know if i told you this but i did dry january almost exactly right after i had vuve clicquot champagne i then went dry for a whole month and i did have one glass of wine earlier this week but only one. I think that that dry January was a good idea and I might make it a yearly thing now. But having said that, I would like to have some more Vuv Clicquot. <laughs> we should talk to Rebecca about the history of champagne and the fascinating story of Vuv Clicquot. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Rebecca, reading your book reminded me of why I love historical fiction, because I learned so much. I knew nothing about the Napoleonic Wars or about how champagne making began. So reading your book was just a real pleasure. Before we get into your book, talk to us a little bit about what your reading life was like as a kid and as a teenager. Were you a a big reader? Ah, yes, I loved to read. But my father started reading to us when we were really young. And so he would read us all of Mark Twain and Gulliver's Travels. And then as I started reading my own things, it was the entire Nancy Drew series, which I loved, and classic fairy tales. I've always loved fairy tales and like the Arabian Nights, anything that's exciting like that. And then, of course, a little bit later, I read Gone with the Wind and Dr. Shivago, you know, all these romantic epics. And I think That is what inspires me with historical fiction is those two books. You know, you write historical fiction, but do you also tend to read for fun historical fiction? I do, because so many amazing things that you can learn. I always loved like the Amy Tan books, so I could learn about that culture whenever I want to learn, but also be intrigued and entertained, I will turn to historical fiction. It's just so novel that way. And you said you like reading it to learn things, but I think that historical fiction writers write it to learn things. Like I never, ever knew about Napoleon before. And I'd even been to France many, many times, and I just kind of ignored, it's just a name to me, Napoleon, until I started writing this book and I realized how much he influenced everything that she did and everything that everyone did during that 1800 to 1815. In fact, the entire world. So I really loved learning about that. So for someone who hasn't read your book, how would you describe 
your novels, Champagne Widows? Uh, well, Champagne Widows is the first of a series, actually. And it will be a series of the these amazing women who were in the champagne industry when it was actually not even legal to own a business as a woman. And this first Champagne Widows is about the very first woman of champagne named Veuve Clicquot, who battled pandemics, mental illness, wars, sexist laws, and even Napoleon to create a champagne empire. She was very inspirational to me. And what was interesting to me is that this champagne brand still exists today. It still thrives today. And in fact, I bought a bottle of it on New Year's Eve and shared it with some friends, including Carrie. And I just thought it was so cool to be drinking this the champagne that I just read a book about that started in the 1800s. That is amazing, isn't it? It makes me almost tear up because she was amazing and had to do this, like I said, when it wasn't even legal to own a business. And she figured out a way to do it. So your novel covers a lot of new ground for people who may not know a whole lot about champagne. And I'm one of those people. So how did your interest in champagne begin? Because I saw on your website that you're a champagne historian. So tell us a little bit about what drew you to champagne. Oh, well, I have always liked sparkling wine. And we'll talk about the difference between sparkling wine and champagne for a second here. So You've heard of Prosecco, you've heard of Cava, you've heard of Champagne, you've heard of sparkling wine, and all those have a different place in history. So first, I just love that sparkle in my wine from the time I was could drink at 21. I would have a sparkling wine to celebrate my 21st birthday. And at that point, I didn't know the difference between Prosecco and Cava and sparkling wine and champagne. And so I got very curious about what makes those different from each other. Also, I live in Sonoma, California, and that is where we have probably a hundred different sparkling wine makers. And so I was able to go to those wineries and learn all about the process that goes into making sparkling wine. And then my husband and I actually started traveling to Champagne, France, and also Spain, where they make cava. And also, let's see, the Prosecco is made in Italy. So we we got to know all the different ways that these sparkling wines are made. And I just thought it was fascinating. You talked about people not knowing what the difference is. Two big differences. One is the method that they're made in. And I have a bottle of the Veuve Clicquot, and it is made in the method Champagnois. And what that means is that they go through two fermentations. That's actually what it means. So it actually takes them twice as long to make champagne as wine because wine goes through one fermentation and it might be a year and a half fermentation, but champagne will go through two and it's a very extensive process. So if you're buying a sparkling wine from America and it's made in that method champagne, like 
my friend, this breathless wine is made in Method Champagne. They're making it in the same process as the champagne in France. But the only thing that can be called champagne is from Champagne, France. That's the basic difference there. I mean, it sounds like this is something you've just studied and learned about and traveled and and gained more information about it over the years. It's true. I'd say 30 years of knowing about champagne. And we talked about Prosecco, which you've heard of. And Prosecco is from Italy. And actually, they use entirely different grapes in Prosecco as they do in champagne and in sparkling wine. And also Cava is from Spain. Same kind of idea, but they use entirely different grapes. And if you like Prosecco, you may not like champagne or vice versa because they're different grapes. So the protagonist in your story was a real person. She was a real widow, Barb Nicole Clicquot, who more or less created the champagne industry in that region. Did you already know a lot about her or did you have to do extensive research? Well, I I did have to do extensive research because for one, she lived in 1800 and there was not a lot written about her. And the biggest thing that we did is that was one of the first champagne houses that we ever visited and we loved it. So then every time we would go back, I think we've been back about five times now, I would hire the historian from the winery to actually take us around the town of Ron's that she grew up in and show us, I mean, they still have the houses that she grew up in and where she moved with her husband and the beautiful countryside cottages that she lived in and her mansions that she built later. So we were able to piece together her entire life over a few weeks and then going back and back. And I was able to talk to the historian who's really in charge of knowing everything that they could know about her. And I was able to piece together this story of Veuve Clicquot. So the novel is also, it's set in early 19th century France. And it does feature Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, he's a big part of the book. So tell us a little bit about the research you did on him. I mean, I'm sure it helps to to be there, to see the countryside. When I first started writing Champagne Widows, I had no idea that Napoleon Bonaparte was going to be a, a piece of it. I really didn't, but I was writing about her and I was studying what was happening in France during that 1800 to 1815. And I discovered that Napoleon Bonaparte had seven world wars. um, They called them the coalition wars in Europe because he was trying to take over all of Europe. That was very disturbing to me. I had no idea that he would do war after war after war with all these different countries trying to take over Europe. And he he started out as a revolutionary, but he ended up uh, announcing that he was the emperor and he just turned it all back into he was the king, you know, and he was in charge of the whole thing. So then I started studying how that would impact Barbara Nicole, who was starting a business then, and it turned out that it 
impacted everything that she did. Number one, women were not allowed to own businesses. Number two, he shut down all the shipping of champagne because he knew that that was a major war tool that he had. All of Europe loved champagne. And who could make champagne? Only the French. And so he shut down the shipping of all of that. And you'll see in the book, and I know you two have read it, that Barbara Nicole does not take no for an answer. And she figures out a way to ship her champagne illegally and secretively across uh, through the entire Baltic Sea to Russia. And it happened to be right when Napoleon was trying to take over Russia and he sees it there. And it's a very interesting give and take that they have. Now, how did I have a clue that they knew each other is because Barbara Nicole's father was named the mayor of Rons by Napoleon. So he was there and he gave him that title. And it, it was really fun to create the intrigue between the royalists, all the French who wanted a French king, and all the Bonapartists who wanted this supposedly free society, which he really did not do, but that's what he said he was doing. And there was a lot of intrigue and a lot of kind of civil war going on between those two factions. It makes me realize how limited the world history that I learned in school was because I really had no idea about the Napoleonic Wars. I didn't realize that they lasted as long as they did, that it killed as many people as it did. So this was really eye-opening to me. I I did not, I, I just had no clue that he was trying to take over all of Europe. It was a great learning experience for me. Well, that's good. And I agree. It's totally wild that these things happen. And even the French today may not really see what he was doing then. Because, you know, they have a big monument, it's called Les Invalids, that's all about Napoleon. And it's not really so much about all those wars that he did. And, and think about what that did to France to be in war for 15 years. And all the men, so that is why this is called Champagne Widows, by the way, because he was taking all the men like 5 million men out of the French population to fight in his wars. And so who did that leave but the widows? And in a weird way, it gave them a lot more rights than they ever would have had because they're doing all the jobs and have to take over all the businesses and working. And before, they had had to stay at home and be the mother and the homemaker. One of the things that I found interesting about your book is the concept of Lanez or the nose. And in your book, Barbara Nicole has what's called the nose. And I'm wondering, is this a real thing that you read about? And what the, what it is, is that she is super sensitive to smells. And that ability gives her a, an edge in the wine industry, as far as being able to blend things that taste good together. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about Lanez. 
It absolutely is a real thing, and you can learn about it on the internet all over the place. In fact, right before this interview, I looked to see a percentage of how smell influences the taste of wine. And you will see in several places that they say about 85% of your sense about wine is from the smell. And that's why bouquet is so important. If you go here, you know, I live in wine country. I can go to hundreds of wineries all the time. And they have charts about this. And it's all about the nose to begin with. You know, whether the wine is a fruity wine or a flowery wine or a spicy wine or an herb wine or an earthy wine or an oak wine, you know, they always talk about the smell first and foremost. And that is definitely a giant part of making wine is to develop a blend that will smell wonderful and go with certain foods. And so she was one of the first people that they really credit her with that sense of Lene. Oh, ha, I said it wrong. Lene. I'm sorry. <laughs> Instead of Lenez, my very American form. <laughs> I read a book. I don't know if you have read this book, Rebecca, but it's called Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker. It talks all about how she spends a year trying to become a master sommelier. Uh, she's a journalist, but it's all about how to train your nose to be more sensitive and to be able to bring more of that ability in to be able to be an effective sommelier. But it talks about all kinds of things, you know, that, that go into that. It was fascinating, but that's what this reminded me of. Okay, well, I'm reading it next because that is something I really aspire to do. And it's a lot of fun, you know, to be able to smell that right away and understand what they're talking about, if it's spicy or, you know, what the flavor is that's coming through the scent. Yeah, absolutely. So another aspect that, that was really interesting about your book is a character that comes up called the Red Man. And he's a person who sort of accompanies Napoleon around, but he also visits Barbie Nicole during a difficult childbirth. And when I was reading the book, I was kind of trying to figure out if this was something that was purely an invention by you, or if there was some folklore or something about a red man. And so when I looked it up, I read that there is actually some, I don't know if you would call it folklore, or if you would say it's like ghost stories or whatever about someone called the red man. So how did you learn about the red man? And why did you want to include it in your novel? Okay, so I love the red man. <laughs> because he is that folkloric part of our lives that exists and none of us really talk about, you know, so we all have superstitions or feelings or we believe in ghosts or we talk to someone who has passed on and he is that person for Napoleon. And I did find out about him because I was researching Napoleon and all of a sudden I found out that he had someone, this is eyewitnesses talking about that there was a red man who he would always talk to. 
and they don't know who that was. Like I made him a coachman, but it was somebody who was part of his life and he would really talk to him about all of his strategies. And so I think the red man is kind of the devil, don't you? Yeah. Or like the devil on his shoulder. Like when I was reading your book, I thought, well, maybe he's real, but maybe he's also just that little devil on his shoulder that's making him make poor choices for his country for the sake of power or greed, you know? So I I felt like you could read it both ways. But yeah, I found it. I found that really intriguing. I included him because Napoleon started out as a really good guy. He was really fighting for the people. And then he turned, you know, and it was his power. And he just became, and I know this from my research, he became really manipulative, like he would study the religions of the people that he wanted to conquer. He would promise them anything, you know, just so he could rule them. So he really turned evil. And so I wanted that feeling that this is the evil part of him that's coming out. But in reality, if you search the red man, there are newspaper articles about him. There are eyewitness accounts about what he said to Napoleon. And so I don't know who he was, but he was there somehow. And I just thought it was a fun way. You know, I did not want Napoleon to take over the book. I just wanted him to be the evil force that is one of the main forces that is against what Barbara Nicole is trying to do. And he really was that. And the red man was the one who made him do it. It's like the devil made me do it. And that Mm -hmm. was him. Plus, I felt very sorry for him in a weird way, because he actually gives up the love of his life. Josephine Bonaparte, he gives up her because of his thirst and lust for power. And that is so sad. And that is really true. And that was in all the letters that he wrote Josephine throughout his life, even when he married, he married a young girl who he'd never even met, the Princess of Austria, just to get that power. So he was controlled by his evil lust there. And that's such a departure. I mean, that's kind of a nice foil in the book because Barb Nicole in the early parts of the book, I I mean, she is fighting against having to marry someone just for the power dynamic that it will create between families. And so, you know, you see how her relationship with the man that she does love and eventually marries is so very different from the choices that he makes. So I hadn't really thought about that until you just said that. Well, they were a contrast because they both had talent. So Napoleon has amazing talent and Barbara Nicole has amazing talent and the decisions that they make through their lives are a contrast with each other. And one ends up having a world renowned champagne house and the other ends up on an island isolated for the rest of his life for all the evil deeds that he did. So the novel also talks about yeast worms. And so Amy and I, we had these conversations about yeast worms. So can you explain what those are and why are they important to the novel? So I think I'd call them snakes, did I? Uh, but I could have called them worms at some point. So I mentioned before that making champagne is in two processes. 
And what happens is they have wine, still wine, and the natural yeast is the thing that makes it ferment. And so when it ferments, then all those little yeast cells die and they form a spiral that's like a snake or a worm. In those days, in 1800, they hadn't figured out how to get beyond that, you know. And so you could pour out a glass of champagne and it would have this horrible yeast snake in it, which would be totally disgusting dead yeast. <laughs> and so Barbara Nicole was the one who figured out for the entire industry how to get rid of that yeast. And what she ended up doing, it is in the novel, but she hasn't figured that out until after the novel ends, that they actually turned the bottle of champagne upside down at an angle and all the dead yeast goes into the neck of the bottle. So Barbara Nicole Clicquot was the one who figured out how to get rid of this horrible problem of dead yeast in the champagne. And what she did was actually bore holes in a table and turn the champagne over on its side upside down so all the dead yeast would fall into the neck of the bottle. Then they would disgorge it. It's called disgorging. They still do it today. Everybody does it. And Vuclico invented it. They take out that dead yeast and then cork it back up again. They'll add in a little bit of wine and new yeast. And that is that second fermentation that we talked about. Remember I said that champagne is twice as hard and twice as long to make as regular wine. That's why it's expensive. So they take out that dead yeast and they put in new yeast that does it again. But that's what that yeast snake is. And she was the one who solved it for the entire champagne industry. So you've written two other historical fiction novels, which are about controversial American women of the time. In The Secret Life of Mrs. London, you focus on the life of Charmian London, who was married to the famous American author Jack London, but she also had an affair with Harry Houdini. And in Gold Digger, The Remarkable Baby Doe Tabor, which is about Elizabeth Tabor, who married a Colorado prospector twice her age who had struck the largest silver mine at the time. So hers is a rags to riches to rag story as she died in poverty even though at one time she was one of the most glamorous and wealthy women of the frontier. So when you are looking for a story to write about, what elements are you looking for in a real person that make you want to create a novel about them? Well, number one, I want it to be a woman. <laughs> because you asked me about my reading habits when I was growing up, and it was really hard to find any stories about women. And so I feel like they've all been left behind in history. And let's take uh, the example of Jack London and Charmian London. Jack London would dictate his stories to Charmian London and Charmian would type them up. And then she would spend the rest of the day editing them. And so in reality, she helped him in a very big way to write 50 novels in 15 years. 
And my feeling is she deserves some credit and no one ever gave that to her. So I really wanted that story to get out. And I don't know if you've read those books, but who Jack London was, was quite different than the Jack London that is portrayed, you know, and he was a tough guy. He was a genius, but a super tough guy to deal with. And she did it all. She was his manager, his muse, his lover, his editor, and really, because of her, he was able to do what he did. So that's that story. And then the baby doe, Tabor. So I grew up in Colorado, and I knew about baby doe Tabor, but she was seen kind of as a harlot and a homebreaker there. And I researched her for all the time I was growing up, from five years old till I started writing about her when I was about 20. And I've discovered wow, this girl was 20 when she came to get a gold mine and her husband abandoned her when she was pregnant and she was working that gold mine alone. So why don't we know that story? And the fact that everyone thought she was a gold digger, but she never left that husband that she married and they did their riches together through Poorer or richer, they were together the entire time. So I love these stories about women who have a lot of guts and are really smart. That's what I need is a big, exciting story, lots of turns about life and women that are champions in their own story. Probably every genre has its complications, but it seems that historical fiction has an added challenge of it being based on a true story. So how do you decide where you feel you can take creative license to move the story along? And what are your strategies for weaving fact with fiction? Each story and each history of the women that I've written about, you can... How do I explain this? So let's take in Veuve Clicquot. I know as a fact that she made really, really, really sweet champagne. And I have seen the one and only picture that was ever painted of her, and she's a very big woman. And so how do I take those facts and I make her have a sweet tooth, you know, in the book? Do I know if she had a sweet tooth? No, I don't. But how did she get so big? And why did she love her sweet champagne? Like she made it so sweet. You've never tasted anything as sweet as that champagne as it was then. And the Russians just loved it. So you take facts and you create the story based on the facts. So she had a sweet tooth, you know, and then you, I knew for a fact that she had a mother that she did not get along with. And that was from the historian. But we don't know why. You know, why didn't she get along with her? So you get into that. And then that's how you do it, is you do research on what kind of people they are and weave the story around that. So everything is kind of true. And plus, like back to Barbie Nicole, I was really disturbed that she didn't try and pass on this business to her daughter. But I read through my research that her daughter was never interested and wasn't really driven to do that. So she let her daughter go to live her life. And she really took care of her daughter and even the daughter's husband, you know, in her life, but she didn't force them to be in the business. Whereas my Madame Pomery that I'm writing about today, 
her children took over the winery afterwards. So that's a whole different story. And it's exciting then to learn things about them and try to stay true to who they were. So let's talk a little bit about this new Champagne Widows you're writing. So you say it's going to be a series. Do you have in your head like how many books they're going to be in the series? I have at least three. I think it's interesting for people to know the stories behind them. And what's cool about these stories is that they're entirely different. Like they happen in different times of history and their their circumstances were entirely different. And yet they have one thing in common, which was they were all widows. And why could they do this champagne business is because they were widows. That was the only way that a woman was able to legally run a business during that time. So that's interesting. And the next one that I just finished the first draft, and I'm going to plug along here on the second, third, fourth, and up to, I usually do about 30 plus drafts. Oh, wow. It's- so what time period is Madame Palmery live in? Yeah, she is 1850. So it's only 50 years later. But things had changed. And she was 40 years old when she started this. And she had never been part of the business at all. So here she is 40. And yet she had had a late in life accident child. So she has a a year and a half year old child. And she's trying to create a champagne house And it's the old boys club. None of the men are going to help her do that. And she has a whole different story than Vuclicot. Like she's not out there working in the fields, in the vineyards. She went to finishing schools in Scotland and in London. And so what she wants to do is create the world's most beautiful winery. And she did. She created this stunning castle during a different war entirely. And everyone thought she was crazy. So she made the first big tasting facility that ever existed. And it's this gorgeous Scottish castle right in the middle of France. And she also invented the first brute champagnes, a dry champagne. So while Veuve Clicquot was all sweet, She was the first one who did the brute. And people in the beginning, all of her male competitors said, this tastes like razor blades going down my throat. (laughs) But she had gone to these finishing schools in England. So she knew that the English like dry drinks. And so she kept trying to do this. And she had a lot of very prominent friends So she was able to sell her champagne, this Brut champagne, in England and in Scotland. And they happened to be an even bigger market for champagne than Russia was. So she created her own market. It's kind of fun. Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it. I have one last question for you, though. And that is, there's something that irks me a little bit in the publishing world right now. And that is to publish books about just like what you write about, women who have not gotten their due, or we don't know their stories. But what happens is on the covers, they show the back of women's heads, which I don't understand, because it kind of makes them anonymous. It makes them invisible. I don't know why they keep 
doing that. But what I love about your cover is it's beautiful. It may not be Vouve Clicquot, but but it's also not the back of somebody's head. So talk a little bit about how (laughs) your cover came about, how you design your covers, and what you think about that trend. It reminds me also of the trend of what publishers um, do for titles now. It's like, they're all the same. Like you couldn't even know, you know, what book you were reading. They'll say the way we were then, or <laughs> the people we left behind, or, you know, there's, they're not very descriptive of what the book is actually about or the time period or anything. And I don't like those covers either. It is very interesting that you said that it's almost an insult to the women that they're writing about. So my cover, I went through a lot of old wine posters, and I have the perfect one for the next book, Champagne Pomery, because they actually did a gorgeous piece of art. But Veuve Clicquot, it was before the time when those beautiful wine posters were happening. There weren't artworks that were done in that period. So I had to go a little bit ahead of time. And this painting that I have on the cover is a girl that's sitting on a cork that is popping out of champagne. And I just thought that that was like the birth of champagne and that both Clicquot deserved that feeling. And this was done by a an artist named Lou Mayer. And I left his name on the cover because I really wanted people to know that it was a person that did this piece of art in the early 1900s, actually. But I love trying to depict who that person was. And actually, I told you that Veuve Clicquot, if you look at her online, she's a really big woman and they only have one painting of her. And I didn't think it was fair because she was 84 When they did that painting, she's 84 years old, but she started it when she was 20. So, you know, then she was a beautiful young girl with a curvaceous figure. And I wanted to portray her that way. Well, the cover of the book is beautiful. Everyone should check it out. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Rebecca Rosenberg and with Carrie. Carrie, what's one of the books you've read? This was actually one of my end of 2021 books, Mordu by Alex Phoebe, our favorite bookseller, Sam Miller. It was in Carmichael's, one of their staff members had chosen it as a favorite book. And so I was intrigued by Sam's description. So I decided to pick it up. It's a pretty big book. It's like over 500 pages, the story, plus it has a huge appendix at the end. And it's first in a trilogy. So I've sort of committed myself a little bit to this trilogy. But It's super interesting. So it's set in urban squalor, and there's a city that is built on the corpse of God, which that that was what sold me. I was like, I got to read this book. But because of the fact that it has been built on the corpse of God, all sorts of weird, magical, unusual abilities sort of burble up into the mud 
and can create unusual creatures. And Nathan, the protagonist of this story, has his own unusual abilities as a result. His father is dying, and his mother has resorted to prostitution to try to get medicine for her husband. Now, later in the story, we learn some secrets about Nathan's parents and how they are connected to the master. And the master is, you know, he's like the ruler of this land, the city. And he's a magician of sorts who also feeds off of God's corpse. Nathan, though... Even though he's a young boy, he may be even stronger and more powerful than the master. And so that's what the reader gets to see. Nathan starting to understand his power and develop it and determine for himself, is the master evil? Is he power hungry? And should Nathan believe everything that the master tells him? So this is about, you know, that that I just discussed, but Nathan's relationship with this band of young criminals who attempt to discover the truth of the mud and why the master has so much power. I flew through this book. You know, normally I say if an author can't say it in like 300 or so pages, I'm not sure I want to participate, but this book I flew through. However, and I know why the author did this, because it is a trilogy, but it ends in such a way that you don't get the answers that you want. And so on the one hand, I understand why an author does that, because they want you to read the next two books. But as a reader, I would have loved to have gotten a little bit more satisfaction at the end. The way it leaves off, not all of my questions are answered. But again, you know, for the purposes of a, a fantasy trilogy... I'm sort of a goofball for even thinking that it was going to end in such a way that my questions were all answered. (laughs) So uh, I highly recommend it. I think I gave it four stars. So it's going to be another series that I take on eventually. I'm not sure when the the next books are coming out, though. I purchased this book for my husband for Christmas. So it is now sitting on his bedside table. So hopefully that means that he will enjoy that one. Yeah, I'll be interested to, to chat with him when he's done and see what he thinks. So. Well, Rebecca, is there a book that you've read recently that has really interested you? I'm always reading two or three books. For one, you have to read so many books to research, you know, about the next novel that you're writing. So I have all these French etiquette books on my Kindle. I have Scottish nobility books. I have about the Franco-Prussian War you know, to learn more about those things. And I try to read them in novels, so I find them enjoyable as well. But I loved the book The Huntress by Kate Quinn this year. And that I loved because it was a story that we haven't heard too much of, like the Night Witches of Russia, who were women pilots, like fighter pilots in the war. So it was that character which was really interesting. A young woman photographer who worked in an antique shop. That was interesting. And then you have the Nazi hunters, like the detectives who are looking for those people. So I just thought that was pretty amazing the way that she kept going back and forth. I read her earlier novel, The Alice Network, and I really enjoyed that one uh, a lot. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. I'm going to meet her soon, so I'm excited about that. Do you know about Novel Network? 
No. The Novel Network is a really cool thing, and they do adventures by the book. And they do these uh, real-life events and also video events with authors together, and they're doing a real big one in February. So Novel Network is a cool thing for people to get to know the authors of the books. Oh, cool. I'll have to check it out. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? Yes, I'm going to talk about the book that our book club read for December. And that is Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. And Bachman is a Swedish author whose book, A Man Called Uva, was very popular a few years ago. And he has a big following here in the U.S. And in this novel, it's set on New Year's Eve, Eve. And there's an attempted bank robbery by someone who isn't really a criminal but needs money. And it goes terribly wrong. And it soon turns into an unintentional hostage situation for many hours. So what the hostage taker, the hostages, and the police learn about themselves and each other is the crux of the book. And the story will make you question your own assumptions and why you hold them. So this is the fourth book that I've read by Bachman, and I've liked some better than others. But what Bachman really excels at is writing flawed characters that are also relatable and endearing. And he often has a large cast of characters, and this book is no exception, and he shows off their very human and humbling emotions. In this book, there's a young lesbian couple expecting their first child, an older couple who's trying to navigate their marriage in retirement. There's an elderly woman, a no-nonsense businesswoman who has trouble making human connections, an actor in a rabbit costume, and a father-son pair who are both police officers on the case, among others. I think I even left some out. But the interactions that they have with each other, good and bad, were complex, but ultimately made for a feel-good read. Another thing that I love about his writing is he adds a touch of humor. His characters are quirky, often curmudgeonly, and there's usually a multi-generational bent. So there are elderly characters right alongside and interacting with 20-somethings or children, and it shows the joys and concerns in different eras of life and, and what they can learn from each other. I like this book quite a lot, but it was one of my favorites of our book club selection for the year. All right. Well, these all sound great. Let's take another short break. Rebecca's going to answer her three in the third degree when we come back. We are back with Rebecca Rosenberg, and she's going to answer her three in the third degree. So Rebecca, you own a lavender farm in Sonoma, California. How did you become a lavender farmer? And what have you learned from the experience of owning your own business? We became lavender farmers because we had five acres in Sonoma. And that is not enough to grow grapes. So we needed to figure out what we could grow there. And we started researching lavender. And I have always loved lavender. I always include a little lavender in every book I write, because lavender is the herb that can do many, many things. It can help you sleep. It can heal your bruises and your cuts. It's just an amazing herb. And it can taste good too. You can use it in cooking. So we became lavender farmers. And for 20 years, we owned a business called Sonoma Lavender, which still exists, but we sold it two years ago. So that's still running and that's 
great. And in fact, something I designed just was part of Oprah's picks for the holidays. So that's exciting. Lavender filled teddy bear. You said, what did I learn? I got to use my creativity in creating products. And I really enjoyed doing that. So it's like creating a book, but it's a more of a physical thing. How can I create a product that's really exciting that has to do with lavender? So I love doing that. We had 50 people making the things right here in Sonoma County. So in that way, it's really different than writing because writing is really just you sitting in your chair and creating something by yourself. And in that case, I had a whole team that I could have sew this thing or that thing and let's try it this way and that way. And, you know, that was fun to work with people. And my Spanish got really, really, really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, I'm thinking about the books that you've written and, you know, at least two out of the three of those women were involved in a business in some way, you know? So do you think that that's one of the reasons that I'm thinking about Baby Doe and obviously Vuv Clicquot, do you think that's partly why you were attracted to them? I I think you're right. I think you're right as I think about it, because those were women that were really enterprising in that time. So I am attracted to those women who are doing something exciting that no one else has done. So your question number two is that you are a cocktail creator for Breathless Wines, a wine business run by four sisters. So what is your favorite cocktail to suggest to others and why that particular one? Okay, so I love to create champagne cocktails because they're lighter. They don't kind of hit you over the head with the alcohol content. And so my favorite has always been called a French 75. And a French 75 has, say, a one ounce of gin. And obviously, different gins taste differently. So you would choose a gin of your liking. And if you don't like gin, you could do it with vodka. And then you Pour the champagne in and you can add either bitters if you like bitters or you can add lavender because lavender has a very herbaceous taste or there is a liqueur that is so beautiful called Saint Germain and that is an elderflower liqueur. So you can add a teeny bit of elderflower liqueur and that is just a delicious, refreshing cocktail. My favorite. That is one of my favorites, too, because I love gin. I love sparkling wine. I love lavender. I've had those in many places. I love a French 75. So I'm glad that you mentioned that one. (laughs) Well, everyone has their own take on a French 75, too. So that makes it fun. All right. Last question. So obviously, as a historical fiction writer, history intrigues you. And we've kind of talked about that. So if you had a time machine, and you could go back to any time, but not any of the times you've written about in your fiction, what time period would you visit and why? And who in history is someone that you'd like to have a glass of champagne with? Uh, Let's see. Well, I think it is quite amazing that Jules Verne wrote about traveling around the world in 80 days by balloon. And that was in, I may get this wrong, 
but maybe like in the early 1800s. But I know that it, balloons were a big part of French history at that point because they actually used them in Napoleon's wars and they also used them in this war that I'm writing about now in 1870. So balloon travel was where airplane travel started from in balloons. And so I would love to have met Jules Verne and understand who he was, because to me, he's kind of like the Mark Twain of France. So that's my answer. And I'm sticking by it. So my family just got back from a trip. We went to Las Vegas and we saw Paris. So they have an Eiffel Tower, but they also have this gorgeous balloon in front of the hotel. And so you saying that makes it make more sense now. Yeah, this was in this war that I'm writing up about now, which is that when the Prussians invaded all of France and they starved out all the Parisians, the only way the Parisians could get out of Paris was by balloon. And there was no mail, there was no trains, there was no way to get out of Paris except by balloon. And they starved them out. I mean, they had to eat animals from the zoo. That's how disgusting it was in Paris. So their only way out were these balloons. So I'm, I'm intrigued by balloons right now. And you'll, you know, like in Veuve Clicquot, I mentioned using balloons and that he had used balloons in their wars. That's pretty wild to think in 1800s, they're using balloons. Interesting. So thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about Champagne Widows. It has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Carrie and Amy. It was a pleasure and cheers to a better 2022. You can find Rebecca Rosenberg at her website, www.rebecca-rosenberg.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Do you have a favorite book you'd like to share with us or feedback for what types of guests you'd like to hear from? If so, send us a message through our website. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.